perhaps this week and at this time of the year, that quote from Benjamin Franklin comes to mind, quote, in this world, nothing is certain except death and taxes. This line's from a letter written to Ben Franklin's friend in Paris, a scientist named John Baptiste Leroy. It's not a long letter. It's not a dense work of philosophy. It's just a letter checking in on a friend during the French Revolution to make sure he's okay. And Franklin gives an update from his end in the United States as the Constitution was ratified a year before and the government was underway. So the quote in its entirety goes like this, quote, our new constitution is now established. Everything seems to promise it will be durable. But in this world, nothing is certain except death and taxes, end quote. So Franklin's words resonate with us. There are few certainties in life more depressing than death and taxes, Thankfully, we as believers can count on greater, better certainties of God and his word. But God doesn't tell us to ignore everything else in this world. He has something to say about other stable matters of life, even if they're not eternal. Marriage, death, taxes, government, kings. And we'd be wise to listen to his counsel. There's even wisdom in overhearing Lord Jesus Christ debating with his enemies 2,000 years ago. So let's take a listen as we read from Luke chapter 20, 20 to 44. Luke chapter 20, verse 20 to 44. If, you're, if you don't have a Bible, please take a pew Bible in front of you and turn it to page 737, 737. And you can also take that home as a gift from us to you. So Luke 20, 20 to 44. So they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be righteous that they might seize on his words in order to deliver him to the power and the authority of the governor. Then they asked him, saying, Teacher, we know that you say and teach rightly, and you do not show personal favoritism, but teach the way of God in truth. Is it lawful for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But he perceived their craftiness and said to them, Why do you test me? Show me a denarius. Whose image and inscription does it have? They answered and said, Caesar's. And he said to them, Render therefore to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. But they could not catch him in his words in the presence of the people, and they marveled at his answer and kept silent. Then some of the Sadducees who deny that there is a resurrection came to him and asked him, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote to us that if a man's brother dies having a wife and he dies without children, his brother should take his wife and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers, and the first took a wife and died without children, and the second took her as wife, and he died childless. Then the third took her, and in like manner the seven also, and they left no children and died. Last of all, the woman died also. Therefore, in the resurrection, whose wife does she become? For all seven had her as wife. Jesus answered and said to them, The sons of this age marry and are given in marriage. But those who are counted worthy to attain that age and the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage, 
nor can they die anymore, for they are equal to the angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. But even Moses showed in the burning bush passage that the dead are raised when he called the Lord the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. For he is not the God of the dead, but of the living, for all live to him. And some of the scribes answered and said, Teacher, you have spoken well. But after that, they dared not question him anymore. And he said to them, How can they say that the Christ is the son of David? Now David himself said in the book of Psalms, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Therefore David calls him Lord. How is he then his son? So it's easy to outline using the number three here. There are three conversations in today's passage. There are three questions that started off. There are three instances of teacher in verses 21, 28, and 39. First, we have the exchange with the spies in verses 20 to 26. It gets us thinking about our relationship with God and the government. Secondly, we have the talk with the Sadducees in verses 27 to 39. It begins with the question about marriage and the resurrection. Thirdly and finally, there's Jesus himself raising a question about Christ, his office, and his relationship to David in verses 40 to 44. Jesus answers all three questions with so much conviction that what begins as uncertainties turn into certainties. We ought to pay attention even if his enemies didn't. Like an earring of gold and an ornament of fine gold is Christ the wise rebuker to our obedient ear. So let's explore now the three certainties in the Christian life. First, God wants us to respect human authority as much as possible. God wants us to respect human authority as much as possible. That's verses 20 to 26. Secondly, the God of the living affirms the future resurrection. The God of the living affirms the future resurrection. That's verses 27 to 39. Thirdly, God has established his son as Lord over all. God has established his son as Lord over all. That's verses 40 to 44. First, God wants us to respect human authority as much as possible. Now, I want to emphasize as much as possible because at times we'll be forced to choose between divine authority and human authority. If that's the case, of course, we ought to obey God rather than men. But even when we can't give our pledge of allegiance, we can still give them honor and respect. Now, for most of us here in most cases, we won't face this dilemma. We can enjoy quiet living, eating our own bread, paying taxes. This is the ordinary Christian life, one of obedience to God and the government. Jesus promoted this idea in today's passage. Verse 20 continues the interactions between Jesus and the crowds at Jerusalem. They, in this verse, refers to the chief priests 
and the scribes in the previous verse 19. And here's a quick review from last time. These leaders knew that they were the intended target of that parable of the vineyard. But angry as they were, they couldn't just grab and kill Jesus because they feared the people. So they try another approach. They try to turn the people against Jesus. So these leaders sent spies. We can figure out who they are by looking at the parallel accounts. We learn from Matthew, Mark, and John that the Pharisees were working closely with the chief priests. They, too, felt targeted by Jesus and his parable. And they, too, feared the people. So they sent some of their own disciples to act as spies. And joining these Pharisees in the spy mission were the Herodians. This is a highly unusual combination, an odd mix, an unlikely duel. See, the Pharisees had major political differences with the Herodians. The Pharisees favored political independence of their people, wanting the Jews to be free of Roman control. The Herodians, on the other hand, whose name says it all, followed Herod Antipas. Herod Antipas was a tetrarch, meaning he ruled over one-fourth of the kingdom of his father, Herod the Great, as a Roman Jewish client king. His government was over Galilee and Perea. There's a lot we can say about Herod and his family. What's most relevant now is their willingness to cooperate and submit to the Roman Empire for political expediency. So why would they work with the Pharisees who resented Roman rule? It's their common hatred of Jesus. They've been discussing a way to get rid of the popular teacher for a while. Going back to his ministry in Galilee, and Jesus also ties them together. He warned, in his, he warned his disciples back in Mark 8, 15, Take heed, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. What finally unites these two is hypocrisy. That's why they were good spies, good at pretending to be righteous. And this was their mission. They want to entangle him in his talk, catch him in his words, seize on his words. Luke tells us the next step, deliver him to the power and the authority of the governor. This is talking about Pontius Pilate, the governor of Judea, who can quickly destroy Jesus. But first the trap is laid, starting with flattery. Jesus is complimented for his character and speech. They appeal to his reputation for telling the truth to all without favoritism. His unswerving resolution to teach the way of God. All these words are true in themselves, except that we must consider who's saying them. As Proverbs 27, 6 tells us, the kisses of an enemy are deceitful. They talk up Jesus in verses 21 of chapter 20 of Luke, and then they build up to verse 22. Is it lawful for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? If Jesus says yes, pay taxes, he'd lose the support of the people. If Jesus says no, he'd be guilty of breaking the law. 
But Jesus sees through the facade. He sees the craftiness motivated by wickedness and hypocrisy. He asked for a denarius worth about a day's worth of work back then. He then points to the image and inscription on the coin. There it is, the likeness of Caesar, the ruler of the Roman Empire. Next, he says in front of everyone, render therefore to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. This answer from Jesus confounds the leaders. They cannot catch him in his words as they intended. Our Lord refuses to go down one of the two possibilities proposed by the spies. It's possible to render to both, both the government and to God, what is due to each. We read him, or we read actually earlier, at least Noah did for us, Proverbs 24, 21. And we, some of us are studying First Peter, and we saw in chapter 2, verse 17, that it's possible to fear God and honor the king. You can pay taxes, and you can pay your tithes. It's both that, not either or. Giving to God and giving to Caesar are not opposites like serving God and serving mammon. So God wants us to respect human authority as much as possible. And before I move on from this principle, let's think about some applications. Remember, the denarius coin has on its surface the image and inscription of Caesar. In parallel, every human being has at his or her core the image and likeness of God. We belong to God and owe ourselves to him. What will it take for you to give yourself fully to the Lord? How do we render to God the things that are God's? Think about our bodies. The Bible tells us to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Specifically, the parts of your bodies, members as instruments of righteousness to God, as slaves of righteousness for holiness. You may want to take time to meditate on the lyrics of that hymn we sang earlier. We didn't sing all the lyrics or all the verses, but Take My Life and Let It Feed by Francis Habergale. Ask the Lord to take your life, moments and days, hands and feet, voice and lips, silver, gold, intellect, and power. Will, heart, love, and yourselves. When we honor God as the highest authority, we'll learn how to honor the lesser authorities. So that's the first certainty of the Christian life. God wants us to respect human authority as much as possible. Let's move on to the second. The God of the living affirms the future resurrection. With the spies of Pharisees and Herodians combined, defeated, here comes another group, the Sadducees. Their name has pious origins, possibly going back to Zadok, that loyal priest in the early monarchy. But group names do not necessarily connect spiritually to their founders' names. Many Lutherans today are nothing like Martin Luther. What's worse, many Christians today are nothing like Christ. Somewhere along the line, 
the Sadducees also lost their way. Here are some commentaries to summarize how the Sadducees lost their way, politically and theologically. First, politically, Leon Morris tells us, quote, they were the conservative, aristocratic, high priestly party, worldly-minded, and very ready to cooperate with the Romans, which, of course, enabled them to maintain their privileged position, end quote. So like the Herodians, they were in league with the political powers of the day. Like the Pharisees, they had some religious veneer to them. And together they formed a council called the Sanhedrin. What about their theology? David Guzik is helpful here. Quote, the Sadducees were the ancient version of the modern liberal theologians. They were anti-supernaturalistic only accepting the first five books of Moses as authentic and disregarding what was written in these books when it pleased them to do so. They did not believe in immortality, spirits, or angels. No resurrection, no angels. That's what we see also in Acts 23, verse 8. That is so depressing, so gloomy. That's why the Sadducees were sad, you see. I got that from seminary. <laughs> well, they didn't think they were sad, so. But seriously, what's a worldview without the supernatural or the resurrection? Here's Paul's take in 1 Corinthians 15 32. If the dead do not rise, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. As ridiculous as this sounds, the devilish doctrine of the Sadducees protects them and allows for a holier-than-thou hypocrisy. There's just enough piety to elevate them above the common folks. To maintain such status, they need to eliminate threats like Jesus. So back to Luke 20, 27-33, where the Sadducees tell this story of seven husbands and one wife. What drives this hypothetical story is the law of leveret marriage. Leveret comes from lever, a Latin word for brother-in-law. According to Deuteronomy 25, 5 to 10, if a married man dies childless, it was the duty of his brother to produce an offspring with the widow. It is hoped that a son will be born who will bear the name of the deceased man and carry on that line. This law is an important background to the true stories of Judah and Tamar in Genesis, Ruth and Boaz in Ruth. But the story that the Sadducees concoct was designed to trip up Jesus. The number seven hints at perfection. None of the brothers seems less deserving of happiness than the other. There's no way to pick just one in response to that question. In the resurrection, whose whose wife does she become? They don't even believe in the resurrection, but they assume it's reality to ridicule those who do believe in it. In Matthew and Mark, we hear how Jesus right away rebukes their theological mistake. The Sadducees do not know the scriptures nor the power of God. 
Again, what a convicting word for liberal, anti-supernaturalist churches today. Next, we hear the Lord's amazing response. Luke doesn't include Christ's skating remarks, but he does include relatively more detail in chapter 20, 34 to 36. Notice, first of all, the contrast between this age in the middle of verse 34 and that age in the middle of verse 35. Notice also the parallels. Here and now, people marry and are given in marriage. There and later, they neither marry nor are given in marriage. Marriage has a sacred purpose in its place, in its time, but it's not meant to last forever. The union of man and woman and procreation are necessary now to fill the earth. Marriage is needed to perpetuate the human race as long as death reigns. But as our Lord tells us, glorified saints cannot die anymore, for they are equal to the angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. This wonderful transformation is a secure promise for God's people, either at the rapture or at the first resurrection. But what happens in the future has its foundation in the past. The resurrection is not a novel idea our Lord made of. It's not merely a five to six hundred year old idea going back to Daniel 12. You got to go back further. It's not just a thousand year old idea going back to David in Psalms. You got to go back farther. We're going back to about 1500 years to Moses in Exodus 3. But technically speaking, the idea of resurrection originates from eternity past with our eternal God who has no beginning, has no end. We need to stop and appreciate the genius of our Lord here. Remember, the Sadducees only accepted the first five books of the Bible as true. But Christ's choice of Exodus 3 is delivered and calculated a word fitly spoken. And he chooses a passage that's well known, Moses' encounter with God in the midst of the burning bush, written by Moses himself. The simple point here is that the Lord would not be referred to as the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob if these three cease to exist at death. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are still alive, because their God is not the God of the dead, but of the living, for all live to him. The God of the living affirms the future resurrection. Have you thought recently about the afterlife? About what happens when you die? Here's what, where I want to stop and talk to you about the sure promises of the gospel. And go back with me to the first part of Luke 20, verse 35. Those who are counted worthy to attain that age and the resurrection from the dead. Let's focus on how we can attain that age, that is, reach heaven. Let me tell you, if you don't make it there, you don't end up in some limbo or purgatory. There's no such thing as a purgatory. There is a lake of fire which is second death. If you die in your sins in your first death, you'll pay for your sins in your second death. 
That dying continues forever in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, in the outer darkness with weeping and gnashing of teeth. Revelation 21 verse 8 tells us exactly who ended up there. The cowardly, unbelieving, abominable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 to 10 tell us fornicators, idolaters, adulterers, homosexual sodomites, thieves, covetous, drunkards, revilers, extortioners will not inherit the kingdom of God. Hell is not only reserved for the worst of humanity. You go down these lists, and I know, and you know, we've broken at least some of God's laws. We've been cowards. We've told lies before. We coveted what others have. So what hope is there for the best of us? Can we ever be counted worthy to attain that age in our own strength? The answer is no. But we start here by admitting we are not worthy on our own. We must first respond to God's call to save sinners in our helpless state. Confess that we're undeserving of heaven and rather we're deserving of hell. Repent from self-righteousness, hypocrisy, the unbelief we observe in today's passage. Trust in Jesus, the Son of God, to be saved. He who has a more excellent name than angels became a little lower than angels. Why? So we might become equal to angels. Now we can find our worth in Christ. We can be worthy because he is worthy to receive power and riches and wisdom, strength and honor and glory and blessing. Jesus is the lamb that was slain. He has redeemed us to God by his blood. He is the perfect lamb who never sinned, but he went to the cross. As 2 Corinthians 5.21 summarizes, God the Father made his son, who knew no sin, to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. But then he rose again from the dead. He became the first fruits of resurrection so that we might have part in the first resurrection. Jesus ascended to heaven to sit at the right hand of the Father. It says in Acts 17.31 that God has appointed now a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. He has given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. And he'll return someday, and all of his enemies will be placed under his feet, even death itself. So these gospel truths are certain. It's a comfort to us who already believe. It's a warning to all who do not. Before you are judged in righteousness, beg God for forgiveness. Ask for mercy. We're reminded every month the truth of Titus 3.5. The Lord saves us not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy. Know that you can be counted righteous now and counted worthy of that age to come. Only by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone.
So let's continue now with the third certainty in the Christian life. God has established his son as Lord over all. It sounds like the religious leaders had enough of our Lord's biblical rebuttals. They dare not question him anymore. But they can't get away fast enough. Now it's Jesus' turn to initiate a discussion with the question. How can they say that the Christ is the son of David? We read in Matthew 22, 41 to 42, the Pharisees themselves say this. They know that all over the Bible, Christ is prophesied to be the seed of David, the son of David, who sit on the throne of David. It's also common knowledge, even to most of us, that our ancestors are, our ancestors are worthy of great respect. At times, uh, us Koreans take this too far, participating in what's called jeza. Jeza is a uh, memorial sacrifice, a meal ritual, observed on the anniversary of an ancestor's death. Thank the Lord I was never asked to participate in one of these while visiting family last summer. Now, within biblical grounds, we can respect those who went before us in our genealogy, family history. The Rechavites in Jeremiah 35 were models of consistency and loyalty to ancestral traditions. The Jews of first century still revere their faith, uh, the faith of Abraham, their father Abraham. But now Jesus points out a paradox, a biblical tension. How can they say that the Christ is the son of David? Besides from Psalm 110, there's no superscription that says David wrote it, but Jesus here and Peter later confirms his authorship. As for the contents, there's much to explore here. There are citations and allusions to this psalm throughout the New Testament. I say Psalm 110 does not merely provide background to our doctrines. It gives us a backbone to our doctrines. Just one verse of this great passage. The first verse is enough to occupy us for a while. David recounts a vision. In it, he overhears God speaking to Christ. The Lord, in all caps, refers to God, Yahweh. My Lord, not in all caps, refers to Christ, Adoni. It is Christ who's invited to sit at God's right hand, not David. Once seated, God the Father will make Christ's enemies his footstool. So we put all this together and return to that question. Therefore, David calls him Lord. How is he then his son? The answer is that Christ is God and man at the same time. David cannot make such a claim. Jesus can. That's why he can say in John eight fifty eight, to those who revered Abraham, most assuredly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Just that it, it's certain that Jesus is the son of Abraham, he is greater than Abraham. 
And just as it's certain that Jesus is the son of David, he's also the Lord of David. We hold these two truths together with the heart of faith. We are certain as believers that God has established his son as Lord over all. And this certainty, this certainty should lead us to worship Christ, to exalt him. And let's do that with our final song, Crown Him with Many Crowns. Awake my soul and sing of him who died for thee and hail him as thy matchless king through all eternity. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for instructing us in your word. Through these questions and answers, through your word, these important questions, questions about our responsibilities as citizens, questions about what's to come after this life, questions about who your son is. May we ask these questions to ourselves and be affirmed by your truths. May we ask these questions to others as they seek you, as they have questions about the most important things of life. And we thank you that your truths are certain and we can rely on them and live according to them. Pray all these things in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.